Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour, our first episode in 2024, Alex. Now, I know that's not technically true because right. our last one aired on January 1st, but for us, it's the first of 24. How are you? I'm good. Cheers. Good to see you. What are you drinking? Cheers. I'm enjoying a vodka gimlet um, for no other reason than I wanted to use my Kraken glass, which I don't know if our viewers can see this pretty, pretty hard to see, but it's got a Kraken much like our own logo for the podcast. It's the logo we have. I am drinking, and uh, the Cognoscenti will disapprove, perhaps, of me drinking it from the bottle, but I have found genuine scientific testing. I found it, this tastes better from the bottle than it does poured into a glass. I'm having Tongolo, which is one of my favorite Belgian beers. Uh, one of these days, uh, you and I will go back to Brussels, not in the winter. Uh, we've done enough of that. And uh, and visit the fine beers of that town. I'll tell you an anecdote about this beer and why I love it so much. Um, I've been drinking this for a while. Um, I was there, I don't know, two, three trips ago. It's a sad thing uh, that involves someone else's um, suffering. I was in a great bar that I know and uh, got a few of these in, watching some football. Belgium was playing Sweden. And it just felt like half time was going on forever. We turned to the landlord and we said, what's going on? I have kind of schoolboy French. One of the guys I was with had really good French. I was with a couple of buddies. And the owner says, there's been a terrorist attack been a terrorist attack at the stadium uh, and uh or near, right by the city uh they didn't uh and this guy he there were fatalities he he took lives that night wow. and um he was targeting uh swedish fans he was targeting you know blonde hair blue eyed and of course that's not me but um nevertheless he was targeting people of western extraction uh, and of course the advice in that environment uh, and he was still on the loose and uh, the uh they didn't let the Belgian fans out until midnight. They didn't let the Swedes out until 3 a.m. And um, a friend of mine was was there at the ground that night. Anyway, uh, the advice in such situations uh, is shelter in place. Well, yeah. I was in a bar. And uh, and so we basically had a lock-in. And uh, I, I consumed more of this than I've probably ever done in my life. Um, and uh, I, of course, <clears throat> my thoughts were firmly with the, the victims of that terrible occasion. Uh, but I um, I toasted them probably a little too much. Um, we'll go back. We'll, you and I will go to that bar one day. Well, cheers. Yeah. And so you, when you say it tastes better out of the bottle, you know wherever you speak, you've done the scientific testing yourself. Well, it tastes great on draft as well. What I don't care for is pouring it into a, oh, a, a bottle. And I don't, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it's um, uh, bottled and then glass doesn't seem to work the same way for me. I'm sure that's complete myth. I'm sure some, someone's going to get in touch and say it's actually impossible, but it definitely tastes different to me. Well, I, I just think the only responsible thing to do is continue the experiment. That's true. That it's, you know, do you know what the winner is there? Science. Science that's is great. It's all about the science. So everybody, last time when we uh, dropped this episode, our last episode, we got uh, well over 3,000 views. We got well over that, but then the Twitter gods took them away, took some of them away from us for some reason. But in any event, season two of the Hidden History Happy Hour is rocking along. The viewership and the listenership is going up every couple of weeks, and we really appreciate that. Don't forget to tell everybody about our podcast. Like us, follow us, wherever you get your podcast. This episode, Alex, as you know, is going to be based entirely 
on the OG yeah. lesson from history. I stand ready. The, oh, I don't even have it here because I had it upstairs. Not the uh, cleverly named uh, more lessons from history. We'll get back to that. And just remember, everybody, my pledge to you on our first episode of season two that we will not move to season three until we've done the entire oeuvre from both books. And uh, perhaps Agreed. the next book. No, no, no news on that front. I take it out. Uh, no, I'm still writing them, but a little more slowly. I'm a little bit busy on other, some other things, but I'm still writing. And if people have ideas for stories, uh, please let me know. I was just thinking, Alex, that as you're taking a hiatus, a little bit of a hiatus from your stories, you could uh, put a sign out on your door like we do in America that says gone fishing when we want to take some time off. So with that, let's hear a fishing story. It's a fishing story that I have indirectly from my friend Gavin Esler, who's a... Uh, a TV presenter and a very good journalist here in the UK. We used to do a show called Dateline London together. It was an insightful show. It was cheap TV. And therefore, of course, the BBC axed it. But anyway, it was um, it was good television. And we, uh, we partnered on it for a long time. And we were, I think, the two founding members of the King Abdullah of Jordan fan club. And um, so he and I, no, Abdullah is far from perfect. Um, but I... In that region, as is the BBC, region. by by Amen. But um, indeed, but uh, Abdullah, um, it, it was someone we were both interested in, and I read uh, Abdullah's um, memoirs, and this story is in it. Ah. So, King Abdullah II uh, of Jordan, was a great friend of the West. He is uh, Sandhurst trained, which is a military academy here in the UK, uh, just as his father and his grandfather before him uh, were so trained. And his elite forces uh, from Jordan often participate in tough missions alongside America and the British. And that's why you often see American, British and Jordanian forces uh, took part in X. And indeed, on some occasions in the past, when he was a younger man, he was not averse uh, to going uh, along with them himself. But of course, before he was king, he was a prince and his equally famous father, King Hussein, uh, was on the throne. Uh, now, I want to take us back to one occasion on in the mid-1980s. And in the course of attempting to both maintain influence and avoid bloodshed in the Middle East, his father visited Iraq to try to talk some sense into Saddam Hussein. Now, Brian, hindsight shows us that was plainly an impossible task. But equally plainly, it's an honourable one, and it's an honourable thing to try. And I must say, too, footnote, this was also pretty uh, broad-minded and pragmatic and duty-oriented of King Hussein, because his first cousin, King Faisal of Iraq, with whom he'd been very close, had been overthrown and brutally executed by the Ba'athist movement that produced Saddam Hussein's uh, coming to power. Anyway, First of many brutal executions. Indeed. Um, as a gesture of goodwill, because in this part of the world uh, where uh, monarchs reign, as in mine, uh, it was thought a good idea to train the heir in the art of diplomacy. Uh, King Hussein took Abdullah uh, with him to uh, Iraq. He also took Abdullah's brother and two of his cousins. And so Abdullah, not unnaturally knowing they're going to go and see Saddam Hussein, says, Dad, what do you want me to do while you're going to be in conversation with this guy? Because, you know, I, I, I'm i not really a massive fan. And um, his father, King Hussein, says, well, you'll spend time with his sons and you'll help to ensure that a positive generation from generation to generation is passed along. Well, not only, of course, did that future uh, not happen for obvious uh, reasons, um, moreover, Abdullah thought to himself, oh, this is going to be great. 
I've got to spend an afternoon with Uday and Kusei Hussein, two of the world's most famous nutters. So, you know, he gets there, he says, so lads, I, I paraphrase slightly. So lads, what are we going to get up to today? And he was surprised and somewhat relieved to be told we're going fishing. He course, said, well, look, I didn't bring any kits uh, and we, I, I'm not dressed for it, uh, which backfired because the clothing is provided for the entire junior generation of the Jordanian entourage, like garish Hawaiian shirts. Don't worry, we thought of this. Here you go. Here's some stuff that we thought was cool because it's the 1980s and we've watched Hawaii Five O or whatever. Um, they think, well, look, we'd better stop complaining. Uh, it's only fishing. I mean, this could have been a lot worse. So they take a small motorboat on Lake Habania. Uh, and by the way, um, that's in Anbar province, which is way west of Baghdad. It needs a flight uh, to get there. So plainly, the Hussein brothers really liked their fishing. Anyway, they're on this small motorboat on the lake. And Abdullah re realizes something's missing. Um, guys, where are the rods? It's like, where are the kits? <laughs> and from the footwell of the boat, Uday pulls out this big plastic sort of carrier bag and it's full of dynamite. Lots and lots of dynamite. Like one takes fishing on a boat. Yeah, yeah. like in a cartoon, right? And he uh, he lights, he's puffing on a cigar. It was the, it was, and in some parts of the world still is this kind of image of macho kind of leader. He's puffing on this big cigar and he lights, starts lighting sticks, plural, of dynamite off uh, these cigars. And the, the, the first two he lights kind of fizzle. And he says, ah, oh, they're duds. And he throws them back into the footwell of the boat. Well, <laughs> This is not sensible. And Abdullah is sitting next to his cousin Talal. They are both trained to an exceptionally high degree in the military. They know this is one of the stupidest things they've ever seen. They also know they can't say, what are you doing? We're going to kill us all. We're going to die. So they sit there. They sit there on the boat with their kind of hands gripping the seats, you know, knowing these fuses may well be burning as they roll around under the seats and so forth. They could, I mean, if you tell the Husseins that they don't know what they're doing, you're probably going to be living more dangerously than you are right now, sitting in a boat full of, of sticks of dynamite rolling around. So they press themselves to the rear of the boat as far as possible and they kind of cross their fingers. The third stick uh, that they that the, the Hussein brothers light uh, stays alight and it goes over the side and it goes up in an enormous explosion, which, of course, must have made uh, our Jordanians think, well, that's what we're due if this uh, carries on. Uh, of course, you think, what is the serenity of a spot of fishing? How peaceful, how relaxing. Over the side uh, go the servants uh, to gather up uh, dead fish now floating on the surface. Remarkably, and one assumes this wasn't the first time they'd done this stupid act. Nobody is uh, killed or even injured in the course of this recreation. And Abdullah and his family returned home to Jordan unscathed. Uh, and as we always say in the, in the city of London, when you host a state banquet, uh, the formula is that you say at the end, we hope you take with you many happy memories. Well, <laughs> obviously, this was the happy memory for them. Dynamite fishing with the Hussein brothers. What an afternoon. Well, I'm sure they didn't. I'm sure the king did not forget. So, in that sense, I guess it was uh, it was memorable. I, I love that story, and um, I wanted you to tell it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it's just a great story, but the second one is that uh, I my recollection from the run up to the Second Iraq War is that Uday and Kusay, if that's how you say it, um, 
they, if I called them psychopaths, I would be insulting psychopaths for a lack of imagination. Correct. They were, yeah. they were amongst the world's truest lunatics. Imagine being told by your dad, you've got to, you've got to spend some leisure time with them and like you're duty bound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you probably read their, you probably read their file from Jordanian intelligence. So, you know, Right. Yeah. You know exactly what they've been up to. And their idea of fun is to go down into the you know, level minus three in the palace and tear some poor sod's fingernails off. I mean, these were yeah. bad, bad, bad guys. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to say about them is when you were talking about the uh, predicament uh, that the Jordanians found themselves in and the 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 method that the Saddam Hussein's kids used for fishing reminded me of this old T-shirt I saw back in the 80s. It was a white T-shirt. It was a couple of uh, buzzards sitting up on a high wire looking down at a bunch of deer that were running around. And one of them says, patience, my ass, I'm going to kill something. <laughs> yeah, it's about right. That's <laughs> about right. Um, so it, it occurs to me, having told a, um, I, I certainly didn't mean to be flippant about it, having told a story about a terrorist attack in Brussels, uh, some of the world's worst despots and their uh, sons and brutal uh, torture and dynamite. And the story I'm now about to tell, this might be our most fun episode so far. <laughs> yeah. it's, well, it's definitely the most fun of 2024. That's for sure. That's for sure. One, one other reason I really wanted you to tell this story, though, Alex, and that is uh, in my other life uh, where I cheat on you online, uh, I have encountered a terrifying, and I think a lot of it's deliberate for propaganda purposes, but a lot of it is just ignorance, uh, complete rewriting of history in a number of respects. Um, well, the most- you're covering the Middle East uh, discussion in a lot of spaces on Twitter, now right, X yeah. on you. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully a lot of my people from there are watching this. Um, one of them, the most egregious, is that a huge percentage of people under 30 uh, surveyed in the United States report that either there was no Holocaust at all, or the Jews caused the Holocaust. You're kidding. Nope. That's, second, that's, I mean, second is even worse than the first. That's the most terrifying thing. But it's also been stuff like, turns out a lot of kids think bin laden was a good guy because they posted romantic videos oh, on tiktok i saw i saw this wave of in bin laden enthusiasm i, I the, just when you think you've seen it all you realize you haven't and then uh the one i spent a lot of time debunking online was that the jews actually did 9-11 that the mossad uh, actually did 9-11 but in some ways the most egregious one not horrifying not the most horrifying like with the holocaust but the most egregious because it like is so who cares is i was on a space talking about something in the middle east had absolutely nothing to do with iraq or at least ancient iraq uh his historical iraq and some guy says well you know uh saddam never used poison gas on anyone yeah and he gassed the it, Kurds on mass it was, he gassed it was his own those... people he gassed yeah. the Iranians. he get so like in a five second google search you know i pulled up an article from the wilson institute which is a nonpartisan think tank in which not only did they show the proof they showed and i don't know if you you may not be old enough well you are you remember Tariq aziz the mouth yeah, of course the uh, mouth of yeah. the prime minister yeah yeah so he, he famously said during the iran iraq war for every insect there is an insecticide and then right. actual public statements by saddam hussein about him gassing so it was just immediately debunkable but my god uh to, to to spout that kind of crap and not even bother first of all maybe he didn't care because there was some propaganda reason but right. a lot of people think a lot of not true things about history so 
I thought we'd talk a little bit about the Hussein boys. Yeah, on the on the not true things. Very interesting. I I saw a, a video recently of uh, Vladimir Putin being shown footage of the moon landing, and someone had run uh, an AI search across it that said the photos of the moon landing were fake. There's a lot of people running their own photographs of themselves through the same technology that says they are AI created. <laughs> you know, so you can take a still of you and I talking, and there's a healthy chance that I mean, I don't know what kind of AI would produce this, but there's a there's a healthy chance that that the computer will say that is computer generated. Yeah, well, and not only that, but if if uh, if someone ran even one episode of this podcast, even ten minutes of an episode through the even the current generation of AI. They could perfectly fake our voices. Uh, make us say anything. Episode. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could save us some time. I'm thinking about. Uh, I'm thinking <laughs> yeah. About. Well, so Alex, I'm told yeah. uh, the, the the team in my ear uh, is telling me that uh, fish are not the only things that explode. Oh, yeah. So my second story of uh, the day, and this is, I mean, this is in the, in it's kind of that horrible histories, which is a series we have here in the UK. We kind of, we're having a lot of fun with very grisly stories today. This is, an, uh, lo- this is a story on the same vein. Long have we been fascinated uh, by those who spontaneously combust. Uh, like the drummer I, in Spinal Tap. Yes, ex- exactly right. Um, and uh, you have no reason to know this, but of course I, I'm a, now a su- successful author, but I've got the occasional sadly failed title that I haven't uh, got away. Uh, but I had a sadly never quite written book about spontaneous combustion called People Who Go Pop. And um, it, it, admittedly, the point with spontaneous combustion is that the person concerned is still alive when it happens rather than the bang coming post-mortem. But I suggest to you that it, the explosion of the dead is still pretty striking. And I think it's therefore very strange that one of the most famous people in history is not better known to have exploded in death. Um, William the Conqueror, or uh. William the Bastard, depending on your perspective, uh, was the Norman who famously conquered England and the Saxons. Last time uh, my country was successfully uh, invaded, uh, at least in conflict, and um, is a, a divisive figure and changed the, the course of these islands. There was a, there was a fully functioning civilization uh, predating the Norman invasion in, uh, in these islands. Uh, anyway, which, which lives on in culture and song and folk and, and certain aspects of law, but um, the Normans changed this, uh, this country enormously in 1066, when, of course, your, your country wasn't quite on the horizon. Anyway, uh, William the Bastard, William the Conqueror, died after being thrown against the pommel of his saddle whilst riding his horse, but he did not die straight away. Uh, the damage done to his internal organs was significant, but he was a while a-dying, and he used the time left, or literally on his deathbed, to split his lands between his children. So he gave Normandy uh, to his firstborn son, Robert, that was supposedly the prize, uh, ha-ha, and he left England to his second surviving son, William Rufus. Uh, Rufus, excuse me. No sooner can one say uh, primogeniture uh, than this legacy was causing problems amongst those he left behind. And the long-running familial dispute, which led to war between uh, the siblings and their followers, is really what sees so much attention about the death of William the Conqueror. And fairly so. That was the kind of that's the historically important thing about his demise. The fate of nations was swayed by that decision he made on his deathbed to divide his uh, his lands. But there is a more immediate and gruesome point to be recalled as well. 
by some oversights and interestingly people used to reuse historic things all the time so you'll find that a chapel commissioned for somebody that didn't get finished in time is used a hundred years later for another monarch uh an ornate sarcophagus is designed for one uh emperor or pharaoh and doesn't get used and is used a hundred years later you know, they were profligate in some ways but rather efficient in household recycling and others anyway the sarcophagus that was made to receive uh, William's remains was relatively narrow. And William, well, how, how to put it, uh, after a lifetime of good royal living off the fat of the land in my country, William was not narrow. And after death, the gases within uh, fat William swelled uh, him up yet more. And you were on the clock, right? The guy's died and he's not going to get any better. And you're going to have to mount a big ceremony for his funeral. So in the Abbey Church at Caen in France, you know, I fear that the efforts to force him into the sarcophagus and nail the lid down rather lacked the les majestés and the uh, dignity expected for a king. And the result certainly did lack the dignity. Because there, as everyone is gathered to pay their respects to the great fallen conquering king, boom, goes William. Um, the chroniclers of the day try, and, and I think they struggle uh, to succeed, but they try to convey the stench of days old. They have to move William's body, right? The stench of days old putrid gut gases suddenly exposed to the air and their effect upon the congregation pressed close around the scene. Don't forget, you, you, you know, you, you're closer to God and closer to the action, uh, the further forward you are. Normally, the good seats are really close. Here, being really close was really bad. Yeah. Um, no doubt a scene of mourning, but therefore also a scene of the great society uh, of the day. And the presiding clergyman, uh, we are faithfully told, set a new record for the speed of the Latin rites he belts through to complete the ceremony. Um, uh, because, as you would, if you were assailed with the rotten remains of a king popped directly beneath your nose. So much for the glory of divine right. Um, side note. In that vein, the philosopher um, Diogenes uh, was much given to teasing Alexander the Great. And uh, he once told him that he had searched for his celebrated father's uh, remains, but he couldn't distinguish Philip II's bones from those of a slave. Um, I think that's what you call risky, uh, risky banter. Um, as I've diverged, as I've diverged, I will uh, indulge myself and diverge once more. I think teasing Alexander the Great was a privilege reserved for the very brave or the very foolish. Uh, to his uh, credit, uh, Alexander saw the genius in the idling philosopher. He famously sort of lived in a barrel and um, is most famous for getting on with his dog. And he tolerated this kind of lunatic kind of uh, bum to the extent few would ever have expected. Indeed, one day taken with the genius of, of this man alexander said to him if i were not alexander then i would wish to be diogenes you know, no greater compliment could alexander the great pay to anyone and diogenes replied if i were not diogenes then i too would wish to be diogenes <laughs> <laughs> anyway so william william the conqueror all conquering conquers my country changes a thousand years of, of history uh we're coming up to coming up to you know, 2066 is the blink of an eye away in um in our historic terms and our purview uh, and we're still talking about william the conqueror 
but what's the lesson of him exploding in his sarcophagus? We are all mortal, and we all leave this world as we arrived in it, no more and no less than any other. And William's body, I think, shows this base fact uh, perhaps a little sooner and more dramatically than even Diogenes, the bluntest of men, ever even dreamt of pointing out. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite of your stories. I remind you. you a couple of things. One is one of my favorite things about visiting London when my kids were little, uh, which I did, and perhaps you'll be doing that in a couple of years. Uh, well, you'll live in London, but you visit the place I'm about to talk about, which is the Tower of London, uh, which is great for many reasons, including that the beef eaters, uh, the docents are very funny. They're they're very well-trained comedians. But I remember being struck by the exhibit of Henry VIII's armor as he lived his life. And it, and just it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Just like William. So uh, Henry VIII uh, founded the, the university college that I attended. And when I say founded, it's a bit like William the Conqueror came to uh, England and uh, changed it uh, rather than uh, founding a new place. Uh, Henry went to Cambridge, found two successful and thriving educational institutions, decided to take them over, incorporate them, whack them together and name them after, well, the Trinity, but really to the greater glory of Henry VIII. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's a little side note. Well, and then uh, I did it did raise an important historical question for me, um, and that is: Does history tell us whether it was the Normans or the Saxons that decided you have a beautiful piece of dinosaur or buffalo or steak that you're getting ready to cook in the UK, and yeah, you got no, nice nobody cooked dinosaur. Fire, but, but, you got a nice right. roaring fire and you decide to boil a pot of water and throw the meat in the water instead. Was that a Norman or a Saxon thing, do you think? Uh, do, do you know, it's, uh, of course, the fashionable thing nowadays as a contrarian would be to blame those dreadful Normans for ruining Saxon life. But I'm pretty sure you'll find that on both sides of the channel, we've indulged in what you regard as a travesty. Um, that's been a, a, a course of, of action for for many people but yeah, a haunch of beef would quite often be roasted over a spit in the fire but if you're preserving your food for longer quite often people would stew and um you remember refrigeration is a relatively recent uh yeah, it, it, yeah with electricity is a relatively recent uh, phenomenon people knew how to cool food of course and knew how to pickle it and preserve it but people didn't uh weren't able to have the same activities that we have on preservation. So what you regard as unattractive in food preparation is a, is a, a sin of both cultures. Yeah, and also two things can be true at the same time. It might be sure. terrible, but also necessary at one point in history. Um, the other thing this reminded me of is the, you know, the indignity of the way that William uh, went out reminded me of Elvis Presley, who uh, famously- Hamburgers on the toilet. Yeah, they had to remove him from his toilet with the jaws of life, so the story goes. I don't know if that's actually true. But I would not have wanted to been the paramedics who had to do that work uh, regardless. And the last thing, and I think this is going to be a nice little crisp episode, which people enjoy every yeah. now and again, is that in keeping with the parade of grizzliness that we're doing on today's show and reminding myself of the, what was that Leatherface guy in your hometown? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You were talking about, um, oh, this is. Uh, and, he, and you guys, you keep, school kids had to go. William to William Cordor, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another William, William. Cordor. Yeah. So I came across something 
that's at least equally grisly and also does a callback to our release the bees, your release the bees story that we've now done twice. Um, and that is apparently the Persians, I think this is the Persians, if, if I'm wrong, Persians don't sue me, but in ancient culture, let's say that, had a method of torturous execution, which uh, is even more horribly creative than most of the others I've heard of over the years. They would take uh, the person, the human that they wanted to execute, and they would sew the person into a very heavy bag with a bunch of small wild animals, and then, into just the to river. make sure they wouldn't take any chances, throw it into the sea. Uh, so the Persians may have done that. The Romans definitely did. Okay, the, well, that was the, a, Romans. the Romans would put people in the Tiber with uh, yeah, in a in a bag with uh, animals, but actually, there's no guarantee that's going to work. I mean, the person may emerge the worse for wear, but um, certainly if the animals got claws, there's uh, you can foresee chances of it working out in their favor, but uh, unlikely. Well, maybe maybe that was actually considered a a less brutal way of killing someone because at least you had a tiny little chance that you or the animals would claw your way out of the bag. Well, and you didn't escape. kill them, right? You didn't take their life. If there's a religious uh, objection to taking life, you hadn't done that. Um, you, their, their death may have resulted from the punishment that was meted out to them, but you didn't directly take their life. Yeah, I don't know if the Romans were so religious, but yes, that's also a, that's also. A oh, good... the Romans were definitely religious in like fifty different ways. I don't think that those any of those those requirements actually prevented them from taking life. I was just kind of spitballing, but uh, the Romans. <laughs> I guess what I meant is, sanctity of life was not a thing. No, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. Yeah. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, Alex has a big event in his life coming up. Uh, the next time you see us, it may have already happened. And uh, we wish you the best, Alex. We wish your lovely Thanks, bride brother. the best. And we'll see I you next time. I appreciate it. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team, of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.